I'd like to start tonight by sharing a sutta that I came across uh, a couple years ago when I was doing a self-retreat. And it was on the second day of the retreat, and it had been a difficult retreat to settle into. And by the end of the second day, I was quite a wimp. (laughs) And so um, I pulled out (laughs) the Samyutta Nikaya, I believe it came from. Uh, Or maybe, I'm not sure. Anyhow, I pulled out one of the suttas um, and read this. And when I read it, it just woke me right up, you know, and I was just able to drop all my wimpiness and get on with the work. So I just found it quite inspirational. So this, again, stepping back to the time of the Buddha. You know, a time was very different conditions in life, and yet people had a similar mind to what we face in life today. And uh, so it begins, Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati, in Jetta's Grove, and at the Pindaka's Park. Then a certain Brahmin approached the Blessed One, and exchanged greetings with him. When they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, he sat down to one side and said to the Blessed One, Master Gotama, what is the cause and reason why the true Dhamma does not endure long after Buddha has attained final Nibbana? And what is the cause and reason why the true Dhamma endures long after a Buddha has attained final Nibbana? It is Brahman because the four establishments of mindfulness are not developed and cultivated that the true Dhamma does not endure long after a Buddha has attained final Nibbana. And it is because the four establishments of mindfulness are developed and cultivated that the true Dhamma endures long after a Buddha has attained final Nibbana. When I read that sutta, I found that there came up within my own mind a feeling of responsibility, that I did want the true Dhamma to prevail in the world. I had already experienced enough in my own life to know that there is something in these teachings of the Dhamma, these teachings that the Buddha gave to know that they are of great value. And um, it seems to me that it's a responsibility that we all share. You know, that I think probably each person here really has some sense of how this practice can help us in our lives, help us to come out of the muck, to you know, um, come out of a really painful state, or way of living, and find a way to be more at peace. You know, not that the conditions of life get so much better, that, but that we relax and allow and bear witness to the unfolding of life as it is. We probably all have some sense of what Mahagosananda was talking about when Carol quoted him last week, about taking, you know, be removing the landmines from our own hearts and minds. You know, recognizing that this is where we have to do the work. 
I know it was a great relief to me to hear the Buddha saying that we could, you know, uh, keep alive the true Dhamma through the establishment of the four foundations of mindfulness. Because this seemed something that I could work with in my own life. You know, when we look around the world at all the problems there are, and, you know, Carol talked about how we just can't fix samsara, we can't make samsara perfect. It's just impossible because of the way things are. But to recognize that there is something that is not just samsara, that there is a way to live in this world that is so imperfect, where we're not fraught, overrun by the conditions of life, where we do find that peace and ease of heart. So, you know, it helped to invigorate me on that retreat, the sense of responsibility. And I know that uh, it's easy even when we would hear a sutta like this, to believe that our teachers will do that work. Our teachers will keep alive this light of the true Dhamma. And if you've had one of your teachers die, it really brings home that we can't leave it up to others. We have to do the work. I was really struck by this a few years ago. Um, I was teaching a retreat, and I got news that the abbess of the nunnery where I'd ordained in Burma. Uh, she's been a wonderful, wonderful woman, you know, a true inspiration, uh, just a delightful, light-hearted being who was totally dedicated to the Dharma, uh, to running this nunnery. Um, you know, I noticed when we walked around in the town, people just greeted her so joyfully. She just was so at ease in the way she lived her life. And so I was teaching this retreat, and I got news that not only she had died, but also that her great-aunt had also died. They died within a month of each other. Her great-aunt had been a nun for 80 years. And I realized that these were two women, and probably not the older of the two, but the abbess certainly. I had imagined that that would always be a place I could go back to that I could always find refuge in going and being with her. And she seemed so vitally alive that I had never imagined that she would just be gone so quick. And so, you know, it just brought home, wow, you know, I can't be leaving it up to others. Otherwise, the chain will be broken. It's really up to us to do our work, to be a part of this chain of awakening so that, you know, what we learn, we can pass on to others. So tonight I'd like to visit these four foundations of mindfulness. And, you know, these are the foundations that we've been practicing with. On one level, they're very basic, and on another level, they're totally essential. It's kind of interesting in being here because I realize it, you know, it's not like some of the retreats at IMS where you know, over and over you get instructions on these four foundations of mindfulness. And here, it's only, you know, in some way, there's an assumption that you understand these four foundations, of which you probably all do have some understanding. 
But this, you know, can in some way help to refresh our memories as to what we're actually working with as we sit here, where we can turn our attention. And, you know, the Buddha talking about them as being foundations, where we can let the mind rest and know of the experience. Also, in putting together this talk, I found myself almost screaming inside, like, I want to do this in four weeks, not one week. There, you know, there's so much to say about each foundation. And it's like I'm just glazing the top, you know, almost like I'm just noting them for you. <laughs> but to remember that you can take any one of these foundations and all of these foundations and work really intimately with them. That's what brings us alive. That's what brings this wakeful presence. That's what helps us to see clearly. And they're just aspects of experience. And, you know, I think last week Carol mentioned that the Buddha talked about in the Satipatthana Sutta this being the direct path. And also at the end of the Sutta, it was he gave the closest thing that you'll get to a guarantee that it works. You know, he talked about how um, it could be seven years, and he goes down from seven years right down to seven days. You know, seven days really isn't so long. If we can really apply ourselves, he said that there was two fruits that could be expected. Either, either the final knowledge, here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, a non-returner. Someone who returns to a higher realm and from there realizes Nibbana. If we really take these four foundations of mindfulness to heart, they are what can free the mind. So first, just to touch on a basic description of mindfulness. I I was in a uh, physical therapy session the other day. It was actually an exercise class. And there was just a few of us, I think four of us, and the woman used the word mindfulness. And you know, it was just such a delight to hear it in a different setting. Uh, you know, we hear it in the hall all the time. But to know that people in all forms of life know about mindfulness. Um, but just to kind of clarify, again, the understanding of mindfulness. The ability to know our experience, simply to know our experience, without adding to it, judging, analyzing, making comment, but just this simple knowing of what is happening, what our experience is, whether it's mind or body. And within this mindfulness, there are two basic ingredients. One is the active ingredient of mindfulness, which is to bring the mind to bear, to turn towards experience. You know, without the effort or energy to bring the mind to experience, we will find ourselves simply disconnected, not noticing. So there is this active part of mindfulness where we can direct our attention to the knowing of one aspect of experience. And then within that, in the knowing of it, there's also a receptive ingredient where we simply see things just as they are, 
where it's like a mirror-like seeing, not needing to change it, do anything with it, just being receptive to whatever is being known. And this mindfulness keeps us from getting caught in the endless stories, proliferations, um, all of the complexities that we get so entangled with. Mindfulness helps us to simplify our lives, to really just know things as they are. So the first of these four foundations is mindfulness of the body. It is the most readily accessible foundation of mindfulness because the body tends to be experienced on a grosser, coarser level. So the breath can at times be quite evident. Sometimes for people it's not, but there could be other body sensations that are also evident. When we're walking, you know, it's quite easy to experience sensations of movement, to really feel what's happening in the body. The body tends to be much easier to notice these changes in than the mind can be, because the, the mind is much more ephemeral. And yet we can find that mindfulness of the body is not so easy. One of the reasons being that many times in the body there is unpleasant experience. Whether it's through the the, um, bigger forms of discomfort of sickness, old age, and death, or just through the aching that comes from sitting upright hour after hour, from the sensations that appear on the buttocks when we've been sitting long periods of time, when we find that it's difficult to sit for long periods in just one position. And probably many of us have come to see that although this body is quite noble on one level, we can, out of this resistance to this discomfort, become almost disembodied, where we aren't aware of it, where you know, as soon as we hit something unpleasant in the body, we escape. The mind wants to go elsewhere. So as we turn to mindfulness of the body, we need to go into the level of direct sensation. It's much easier than when we're caught in you know, a pain in the knee and get caught in the story about the knee. And I know this one well from recent experience. But you know, the story about well, how did this come into being, what's going to happen in the future, you know, fear that we won't be able to walk, fear that I won't be able to sit again, whatever it might be. You know, that's a proliferation that just keeps us from being in the body. But it's really different when we zoom in, when we be with that experience, tightness, pressure, heat, just feeling the body in the body. Not needing to... Um, relate that to what it's going to look like when this body is 90 years old. You know, right now, to live in this moment, let that be enough. Let it be known what the experience of this body is. We find because the body 
is uh, experienced on this grosser, coarser level, that it really works as a good anchor in our practice. Because you know, we can come back to it over and over again. It's more tangible than the mind. So, you know, and with that, it's really just knowing sensations of breath. It's not limited to what happens as we sit. But the Buddha talked about being mindful of the body in the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. This gives us a vehicle to move throughout our whole lives and have an anchor to come back to. If we can really learn to be mindful of this body. In working with the different postures, to remember that it in, includes the transition periods, you know, going from sitting to standing, the twisting, turning, bending, that we learn to pay attention moment by moment to what this body is experiencing as we move throughout the day. We can really experience a beauty of mindfulness of the body when we experience something like anger, which can be so complex in the mind. Know that it can be hard to be with. The story can be very compelling. We get caught in it over and over. And yet, if you know, in a moment of anger, we turn towards sensations in the body, it helps to simplify it. We might just experience tightness, heat, contraction. And so many times in my own life, by staying with anger through the experience of the body, I've come to see something in a whole new way. There's a purity because it's not so complex. And it may be that it goes from mindfulness of the body into an insight into um, the changing nature of that anger. But the body really helped us to be with it, to see it, to know it, to taste it. if we can really pay attention to any activity that we're doing during the day, it opens the doorway to many more moments of insight, many more moments where we can be free, where we're not caught, not struggling, but just resting in the awareness of this experience. Another form of mindfulness of the body is to recognize the elements of the body, the elements being earth, fire, air, and water. And these are the elements that we find when we break down this body. We experience these directly in our practice. The earth element acts as a foundation in which something can rest itself, just as we sit and rest on the earth, and we feel the hardness or the softness. 
And this is how we experientially know of the earth element. When we touch the fabric of our cushions, it might be quite soft. When we sit for a long period, we might experience hardness. This is the earth element. The water element is that which gives cohesiveness. Its characteristics are trickling, cohesion, or fluidity. And it manifests as holding things together. When we're walking, we might experience a stickiness on the floor. This can be water element. We might also experience the wetness in the corner of our eyes. And sometimes there's actual moisture there, and sometimes it's just a feeling of moisture. We can also experience the water element when we have a sense of touching something, and that when we touch it, the boundaries dissolve. And it's almost like leaning into a wall and merging with it. There's a cohesion with it. And this is the water element. We experience the fire element as heat or cold. It is the element which helps things to mature. Um, There's said to be four types of fire. Something that is warmed, things that are aging, something that burns up, or our digestion gives a certain type of heat. We will find at times in practice that we will experience heat and cold very intensively. You know, sometimes you know, the heat is just burning fire. Other times the coldness can have a deathly cold feeling to it. One time when I experienced that in Burma, and I told Sayadaw of Janaka how cold things were, and you know, Burma is extremely hot, he looked at me and said, maybe you've been practicing in Siberia. <laughs> but it can be so intense that it doesn't even make sense within the environment that we're in. And yet it's, it's when we're just knowing of these elements. And you know, and it's not like as we note that we need to know water air element, air element, fire element, that's conceptual. But we know it directly through heat, cold, softness, hardness, um, whatever else they are. <laughs> uh, the air element, which gives motion, support, and vibration. It, we experience a lot, a lot in the breath. Um, we experience its function as causing movement through extension, expanding, or distending. The air element makes possible all the movement that we do. Very important. I'd like to, if I can, read an enlightenment poem from um, a nun in the time of the Buddha. Her name was Uttama. And it's said that she was struggling. She was having a hard time. And then she heard these words from Patachara, was her teacher. Four or five times I left my cell. I had no peace of mind, no control over my mind. I went to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dharma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard what she said and sat cross-legged, 
seven days full of joy. When on the eighth I stretched my feet out, the great dark was torn apart. So may you have seven days of full joy. (laughs) And on the eighth day, just mindfulness of movement as you stretch out your legs. (laughs) I love that story, both because it points towards just being with experience on a very simple way, and also that, you know, it's something so simple as being present for the extending of a limb. You know, it doesn't have to be more than that. And the mind opens in a new way. So this body, it's a, it's a gift to us. And I know it doesn't feel like it all the time. It really doesn't, you know. It's obvious. As I said, it's sometimes really hard to be with. But going to the level of simplicity with it, it's less complex. Just knowing the sensations. Hardness, tingling, vibration, heat, coolness. Keeping it really simple. So we get to know this body in its specific characteristics, and we get to know this body in its universal characteristics, how it is constantly changing, how there's an unsatisfactoriness in this continual change, and how it's insubstantial. You know, it tends to be, we think, I am this body. But when we look, it starts to just move into the elements. It really helps to break down this identification with this body. So the first foundation, mindfulness of the body. The second foundation is mindfulness of Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality that is present in each moment of experience as they arise through the sense doors and are known. Carol talked about this on Tuesday. You know, how with this um, Vedana, or texture of experience, we have this deeply habituated response to move or cling on to the pleasant, to want to hang on to it, and to want to push away the unpleasant. And you know, often when it's neutral, we just disconnect, space out, not really pre- present. And, you know, as she said, it's almost like it's cellular. It's so deeply habituated. And we become more familiar with this pleasant, unneutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral um, texture of experience when we pay close attention to contact through the sense doors, to knowing our experience in its arising. Because it's at the moment where there is contact that that this quality will become known. So it happens when there's a sense organ, such as the eye, makes contact with an object, such as light, and there's consciousness that knows of this experience. And with that, there is either the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that will vary depending on our 
our karmic conditioning. You know, if we've been a person um, such as myself who skied a lot on uh, snow without sunglasses, sometimes bright light can be very painful. So, for myself at times, it might be experienced as unpleasant. If you're a person who has a fear of the dark and there's light, it might be pleasant. And for many people, light might be quite neutral. So it will vary. And it really uh, is conditioned by perception and memory. And that all happens very quickly. Very, very quickly. But when our mindfulness is sharp, we will start to become quite aware of just this quality, the texture of the feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. we will find at times in practice that the shift between pleasant and unpleasant can be very rapid. You know, one time when I experienced this quite strongly, wasn't actually on a retreat, but when I'd hurt my back quite badly. And then I went on a camping trip, was out in nature. And um, probably many of you know, I really love to be in nature. So I was doing something I loved to do, and I had this really painful back. And it was hard to get down and you know, climb into a tent that was quite painful. And then to lay on just a, a little mattress with a very sore back was also quite painful. And what I found happening was that there would be a moment where the pain would be known, it was unpleasant, and then awareness of nature. And it was very pleasant. And it was shifting back and forth so rapidly. What I came to see was that it kept me from really kind of absorbing or sinking into the pleasant, as I often do in nature, where I get carried away by it. It helped me to keep from being intoxicated. If I could stay with this rapidly changing, pleasant, unpleasant, and it really sharpened perception. You know, the mind was so quick to pick up these changes. The neutral tends to be something we're not trained at being awake, aware, alert to. And this becomes quite problematic in our lives because then we rely on stimulus. We rely on something being uh, really pleasant or intoxicating or something being really intense, unpleasant, to give us that sense of being alive and awake leading us into you know, that addiction to intensity. And when we're not aware of neutral experience, this is also a place where subtly the identification of self happens. Because in a moment when mindfulness isn't present, then this I, me, or mine starts to creep in. It's where delusion is, where we aren't seeing clearly. But for this reason, um, it's why the training with the breath can be so important, because it is experienced for most or many people, not all people, as being relatively neutral. So it's a training in being present to 
a more neutral aspect of experience. This helps us to train to be open and aware, awake, alert to all of the ordinary things we do in life. That we don't have to be climbing a mountain or kayaking in a a fast-moving river or we, we are not relying on the conditions of our life to be awake. That we learn how to touch into the natural quality of wakefulness, which is much more sustaining, much more easeful than being caught in this push and pull to life. I had one teacher who described mindfulness of vedana, or feelings, as it's often translated as, as being the shortcut. And you know, personally, I, I don't think of there being shortcuts, but I can understand what he was pointing towards, how we can go to this really immediate level of knowing of our experience by simply knowing of the texture. And again, that keeps us out of the complexity the story, getting lost in the story, or getting overly fascinated by experience. It also, um, you know, it helps us to be with all of the different kinds of experience that arise, and it, and it helps to establish in the mind equanimity, where we're not grasping after the pleasant experience. We're not pulling away from the unpleasant, and we're not disconnecting when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. By being mindful of feelings, it's said to break down the illusion of pleasantness. And how often do we um, really just try to imagine this, that everything will be pleasant? You know, that will be liberation when everything is pleasant. But if we pay attention on this level of Vedana, it helps to break down the illusion that we will one day reside in an only pleasant world. So this foundation seems very important because it does send us into reaction when we aren't aware of it, when we aren't mindful of this texture of experience. It's the place where we start to move into the craving, the greed, the wanting, desire, aversion. It's where we get set off, and yet by just being aware of this texture of experience has the potential to keep us from moving into reaction. And sometimes we will find we're aware, pleasant, pleasant, and then all of a sudden there's a, we see that there is a grasping. We can right then note the grasping. Um, there can be the potential to just let go 
and to know the experience again in just its immediate texture. So mindfulness of Vedana, or feeling. The third foundation is mindfulness of the mind, or consciousness. Mindfulness of the knowing element of mind, and also all of the different colorations of consciousness. Colorations such as greed, hatred, delusion. The Buddha talked about contracted mind, distracted mind, concentrated mind, unconcentrated mind, exalted mind, unexalted mind, surpassed mind, unsurpassed mind, liberated mind, and unliberated mind. Different ways consciousness can be colored. One way I like to think of mindfulness of the mind is mindfulness of the atmosphere of the mind. Just having a sense of the flavor of the mind. Often these colorations of consciousness will color our view of life. So they really hold a lot of weight that when we're not aware of these colorations, we start to um, fixate, become rigid, believe this is the way things are. You know, just the way we establish ourselves in a moment of anger, where we are angry, we are justified in our anger. There's a re- you know, we get caught in the whole proliferation, where if we can be aware that anger is present in the mind, it can help us to then, you know, if somebody comes along and says something and that stimulates more anger, knowing that anger was present, maybe we don't just then lash out in reaction. Because we know anger is present. And we don't blame ourselves for it. We don't blame the other pers- person. We simply know that this is what is present in the moment. <clears throat> And again, this foundation helps us to break down the complexities of mind, although it's not always so easy to do. Because as I said earlier in the talk, the mind, it's quick. It changes so rapidly. It's, um, it's ephemeral. And so, you know, to catch these changing colorations of mind when, you know, it's not so solid or the sense of solidity as knowing of hardness or softness. It's so fleeting, intangible at times. And, you know, with that coming to know the atmosphere of the mind, something that helped me was to really develop the capacity to listen to experience, to just allow the attention to be with the experience and let it speak, let it become known what is present. So with this foundation of mindfulness, we begin to know greed when it's present in the mind, hatred when it's present in the mind, delusion when it's present in the mind. We start to see when these qualities are present and when they're not present. We begin to see that these are just changing mind states. 
that we don't need to elaborate them into our personal biographies. It helps us to go right into the very roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, and to just know them in our experience. Just to know when anger is present. Just to know when lust is present. To feel the texture of it, not to add to it, not to glorify it, but just simply to know it. When we can just rest in knowing these different mind states, the atmosphere of the mind, it can be just such a huge relief. Know again, moving out of that complexity into simplicity. Our practice is really helping us to unpack what seems so complex and complicated. Know and just be with it, be with life in its simplicity. The main benefit of working with this foundation is that we really come to know our own minds. We really come to see knowing in itself arising and passing away. Consciousness in itself arising and passing away. All of these mind states arising and passing away. And through that, we can develop this deep honesty with life and a wholehearted engagement with life where we aren't so viciously judging ourselves when we don't like the mind state that's present. But we just simply know the mind in the mind. So the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of consciousness, mindfulness of the colorations of consciousness as they appear in our experience. The last foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of dhammas. This mindfulness of dhammas, often translated as mind objects, which can be confusing because it includes both body and mind. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated it simply as phenomena classified by the way of categories of the Dhamma of the the Buddha's teachings of actuality. In the Satipatthana Sutta for mindfulness of Dhammas, the Buddha lists, has some of his famous lists. And the, the lists that are mentioned are the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, the six sense doors, both internally and externally, the five aggregates or five places of clinging, and it culminates in the understanding of the four noble truths. How I've come to view this last 
um, foundation of mindfulness is that it's really where there's a deepening of wisdom, a deepening of understanding. You know, I'll take an example where if we look at desire, we find desire known as a mind state in the third foundation of mindfulness. In the fourth foundation, when the Buddha talks about the hindrances, he talks about, um, or he, he goes through all of the different lists in a way of knowing when they're present, when they're not present, knowing the causes and conditions that give rise to its arising, and if it's unwholesome, what gives rise to, what helps us to abandon, and if it's wholesome, what helps us to continue to develop. So what we find is that we have a deepening understanding of how things function, the ways of life, the natural laws of life. Now, on working with this foundation, it isn't that you need to sit there and memorize all of the lists and you know, um, try to actively work with them all the time. That will probably just really stir up the mind a lot of the time. But that through doing the practice that we do, through being aware of these different aspects of experience, we also come to understand the natural lawfulness of these experiences. We start to understand them as dhammas. So with these, I'll just speak a little bit about the working with desire from the place of the fourth foundation. So learning to recognize when desire is present, when it's not present, the causes and conditions that give rise to desire. So one of, that can be unwise attention. When we don't pay attention, we get pulled into desire. <clears throat> What will help us to abandon desire, which is mindfulness, wise attention, paying attention. How to prevent the arising of desire in the future? We do so by continuity of mindfulness. So, you know, it's really quite basic how we pay attention to this foundation of mindfulness, to really come to know our experience and its arising, passing away, what conditions Um, are wholesome and can be cultivated and what are unwholesome and can be let go of, abandoned. Another of the lists being the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors being mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It can be very interesting at times to simply notice, is concentration present? Is it not present? How do we strengthen concentration? How do we um, work with sustaining that concentration? And we come to know this through the simple doing of the practice. This foundation really helps us to 
see what gives rise to the causes and conditions of I, me, and mine, the solidity of self, the grasping attachment. It helps us to understand the movement of this mind, this body, to understand our habituated tendencies. All of the lists that the Buddha gives in this section slant the mind towards liberation. Um, This is a term that appears in the text often, often slanting the mind towards liberation, or that which slants towards liberation. I quite like the term, you know, because when you picture how if you put a ball at the top of the hill, it's going to just naturally roll to the bottom. So we point the mind towards that which is going to help to liberate and free the mind. So these four foundations are all aspects of our experience. And they cover whatever we're going to do in our lives. They give us this vehicle to be aware, alert, present at any moment in our lives. While we're here, we work with them in very um, refined ways, but those ways are still applicable to our daily lives. And you know, we work with strengthening that through being aware of our daily activities here. <clears throat> Working with these four foundations of mindfulness, it helps us to keep from falling into having dogmatic beliefs where we're really looking to our direct experience, moment by moment, where we let ourselves be in this laboratory of life to come to know things just as they are. We keep it very simple, just the simple knowing of what our experience is in any moment. Sometimes we may be working more with one foundation than the other, Others, but other times we'll be working um, with a rapidly changing experience of all of these four foundations. Working with these four foundations helps us to unpack the complexities of life. We stay in the flow of changing conditions. This leads to a deepening insight and freedom from our habituated tendencies. It allows us to rest in the experience of this life, to come to see things in their changing nature, to break down the solid sense of who we are. And with that, there comes a lessening of fear, anxiety, and a relaxing, a releasing of the heart. These four foundations of mindfulness, the basis of our practice here. Keeping the practice simple. Four foundations that are readily knowable, experienced moment by moment in our lives.
letting this be the vehicle for our liberation. So let's just sit for a moment. From the Buddha, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. These four foundations of mindfulness being accessible to us here and now, in this very moment. May any goodness that arises from our practice, from the work that we do, may this be dedicated to the alleviation of suffering, the liberation, welfare, of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.